introduce our guest, Chris Nelson. Uh, Bruce's <coughs> pre-service email provided some details about Chris, and I'm just going to repeat them to keep them fresh in our minds. Chris has served as a Baptist pastor and currently coordinates pastoral care at the Calvary Hayden Retirement Community in Bruce. There he assists 100 full-time care residents and 100 independent living residents as they prepare for these last days of their lives. Chris, I was wondering if you'd like to expand a bit on that brief and tell us more about yourself. I've got some questions here. I'll ask those, and if you can just tell us more about yourself. You are currently employed as a pastoral care coordinator at an aged care facility. How exactly did you get into that field of work? I got into it after probably 30 years of being a Baptist pastor working in churches in New South Wales. Um, and then what happened was is I, I found myself, but it was really quite exciting, doing some church plants here in Canberra, uh, working with Dom Fiocco at Wayne Valley uh, Bible Church. It's now Southside. And so I was part of a few church plants, did that for about 10 years, and, and that ministry sort of came to an end. And what would normally happen was I would have been, uh, moved to another place, and I thought I'd really love to stay here in Canberra made some great friends, great ministry opportunities, and a position came up um, in uh, Calvary Hayden, and basically the description of what they were looking for was a minister um, who could minister to people in the last um, years, months, days of their lives. Um, so I was able uh, to apply to the position and took it up and um, have really enjoyed it. So that, that that's the journey, but I can see... Um, it's a sort of position where the experience I had in working in churches um, has equipped me to be able to help these people at this time because they come from a variety of backgrounds and in my church work I came across quite a wide range of people. Um, so that's been uh, the, how I got my how I came into Calvary Hayden. What do you find challenging about the work, and what do you what, what aspects of it do you enjoy? Um, probably the challenging part, and I had these conversations with the residents a lot, that they're facing, so you've got to think of all the things that are happening in their life, and any one of them would be quite momentous, and that is, so they, they leave their homes, um, and some of them have nice, beautiful homes with gardens, and find themselves in a room um, about the size of a, a hotel room. So that's a huge change to have to deal with. Mm -hmm. As well as that, they're surrounded by a group of people uh, they don't know, who can't hear, can't see. So communications problem. So there's all this stress. Uh, <laughs> there's all this stress. Sorry, I'm painting a pretty bad picture, but there's all this stress uh, involved in moving in, um, and then they're also realising that this is the last place they're going to live in. So for me, the challenging part is. They're facing these, these great stress, and, but they're physically, emotionally, um, they're finding it harder and harder to deal with. So that brings to the positive because they're surrounded by people who want to help them and they're not alone. And we, they uh, find friendship amongst the other residents over time. Uh, so once they get through that first period of stress, um, then they can have a good quality of life and um, what, what's really enjoyable is being able to get alongside these people and help them 
um, in the, in these last stages. And uh, <clears throat> one more, why should we be listening to what you have to say about euthanasia and palliative care? Um, we've, be, we've become very good at living, um, living long lives. And um, so we're all of us, it's a high likelihood that we will uh, face this situation where uh, we know our death is coming and there is a pressure in our society at the moment to mm -hmm. say, well, you can choose to end your life. There is enormous pressure. Um, and it has to do with individual rights. It has to do with our view of suffering. Um, and so I think it's a very important topic because um, this is the momentum towards uh, allowing people to uh, end their lives at their choosing is growing. And it, it has enormous impact on our society, our families, our friendships, the whole network of relationships that we're part of. So I, I think um, all of us will eventually have to deal with this this question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and especially like with the, also with the concept of palliative care. Um, that's an important topic because, um, in a way, it's we're not. People aren't talking about the, the amount of care that is provided um, and how I, I believe it's still possible to give people a good death and um, where people aren't aware of that. So the more we can be aware of palliative care and what it actually is, uh, I think that will change the whole debate about euthanasia. Thanks very much, Chris. <clears throat> I guess one question I've got, which... Yeah you'll probably address during the course of your your talk is does the does the spectre of approaching death have an effect on people's perceptions of what of how they understand themselves and how they understand their if you like their mortality or their eternality um do you find it hardens them but probably best to leave that one for later on in the talk but it's something i'd be interested in hearing about perhaps you'd like to know go on and um Define the terms for us and um, get us started. Yeah, no, happy to do that. So if some of you, will, you'll, you'll have your outlines there. Um, um, so what I've done is I'm just going to give a brief overview. So it's, it's just so we're clarifying what we mean by euthanasia and palliative care. And then I'm going to briefly introduce um, a what I consider a biblical perspective. And so it's it's... Rather than just going to uh, specific verses, it's, it's more about um, a worldview. But first, if you have a look at what euthanasia is, um, euthanasia is a deliberate, intentional act of one person to end the life of another person in order to relieve that person's suffering. So it's not suicide, because that's where you take your own life. Euthanasia is where you're asking someone else, and that's what our society is saying. They want uh, a professional... They want a, a medical person to assist them in dying. Um, so it's not suicide, because that's where you take it. You're, you're asking someone else, could you please help me do this? And so that's what, and then I've got a list there of the various types. The one that our society is moving towards is voluntary. That is chosen by the person suffering, and it's known as, and, and they're moving away from the word euthanasia, and they're moving towards voluntary assisted dying. So the voluntary part is where I choose. I feel like 
I've come to the end of my life. I don't want what lies ahead, the suffering, the heartache. Um, and I need assistance to do this because you could do more damage to yourself. I want it to be, the whole goal of it is for it to be comfortable, peaceful and um, without pain. So I need assistance to do that. And so that's voluntary assisted. Now, now there are some other varieties that have been around over the years, non-voluntary performed on a person who cannot decide for themselves. And so I'm going to mention that a bit later, but in Sweden, there is a push towards this. They've already adopted voluntary assisted dying. Now they're moving towards making a decision for people who can't decide for themselves. Okay. Right <laughs> and so that's when you can imagine when a person has uh, got dementia, they might say that person's not able to make this decision anymore. The family should be able to decide for them. So that's not voluntary. That means the person's not choosing it. It's putting on. Then there's involuntary, performed on a person against their will. That's pretty close to murder. Uh, and I've also, I'm going to talk, expand a bit more on this in the talk about what it's not. And this is where it overlaps into palliative care. It is not declining medical treatment. So you can get to a point in your life where you feel like I've, I've um, pursued all options uh, and I've, I've come to a place in my life where um, I'm stopping treatment because I feel like I've done what I can. And I just, I'm going to let the disease take its course. So people suffering from cancer will come to a point where I say, look, the treatment is so horrible. My life is so terrible. I've just decided I'm not going to be treated anymore. So that, that's not euthanasia. That's where you're letting the natural course of the disease have its way. You've done, you feel like you've done enough. And it's not the administration of pain relief. So that's, that's in palliative care because we've got very good at being able to alleviate people's pain. We can't take away all the suffering, can't take away all the pain, but um, I do believe that we're at a point now where we can give people a good death in the sense of that it's peaceful, it's comfortable as, as they let the disease take its course and um, they pass away. Uh, surrounded by family who love and care for them. Um, mm -hmm. So that's not euthanasia either. So the um, declining medical treatment and administration of pain relief are part of our current system. And so you can imagine with our medical advancements, We've got to a point where um, this decision of declining medical treatment is happening more and more. So a person in their 90s, um, they'll go to the doctor and say, look, you've got cancer and here's the treatment. They'll say, no, I feel like, I've, you know, um, I've come to the end, so I don't want that treatment. So you can imagine we get, we're just getting better and better at prolonging people's lives. Um, so that, that choice comes up. And that, that brings to, uh, to palliative care. Uh, what is palliative care? Palliative care is person and family-centred care provided for a person with an active progressive advanced disease who has little or no prospect of, core, of cure and who's expected to die and for whom the primary goal is to optimise the quality of life. So I'll give you an, uh, the contrast. When you go to a hospital... They'll do everything they can to treat the disease. Uh, but when you go to a hospice or an aged care facility, 
we'll do everything we can to care for the person. So it's all about the person. Uh, they come first, and that's that person and family-centred care. Uh, Clare Hall and House, that's run by Calvary, um, and mostly the people who go there only have two weeks to live. They are not being actively treated, but they are made feel comfortable. Uh, they're, they're made to, as best as possible, to enjoy the last days of their life. That's palliative care. Uh, we're still caring for them. They might treat some problems because it's causing them so much discomfort. They're not treating others. And we do the same in aged care. But a ho hospitals aren't set up for that. So that's the difference between normal care you get in a hospital and what you get in aged care. Um, and and uh, I know you've got questions and comments there, but I might actually say that after I start referring to some Bible passages. Um, so I'll, I'll move that a bit later. But I just want to briefly now, before we look at the scripture, is give you a bit of a, a clue of, well, how do we approach this topic from a biblical perspective? Now, I could find verses, um, specific verses, but I think the best way to approach it is from a worldview perspective. Because those who are um, arguing for euthanasia have a very particular worldview in mind that they don't discuss. It's just accepted. And that's namely the rights of the individual are paramount above all others. So your right to do with your life that's what, so that's a particular worldview. The Bible's worldview is quite different. Um, it definitely recognizes the individual, but always in a network of relationships. Um, uh, so the Bible always thinks of a person as being in relationship with God, um, with each other, uh, other people, with themselves, and then... Uh, their relation, a person's relationship within the universe, the world in which they live. That's the Bible's worldview. Uh, our society's worldview is very different. It's all about the individual. And that's what's given rise to euthanasia. So if we're, if we're going to have a biblical understanding of euthanasia, we, we have to make sure that we have this biblical worldview in place. So that's what we're gonna, I'm going to be talking about in a moment. But, but first... Uh, we're going to have a chance to reflect on the two passages um, I wanted to look at that draw out this idea of the network of relationships we're in and how that might impact on our understanding of euthanasia and palliative care. And the first one is from Psalm 8. And as the passage is being read, if, if you could think about these questions, how are we described in the passage? How is God described? Who is he? How do we relate to him? What is our relationship with the created world in which God has placed us? And how might this passage guide our approach to euthanasia? So Sharon's going to, to read that psalm for us. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? 
human beings that you should care for them. Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honour. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Thanks, Sharon. And Margaret's now going to read to us Ephesians 1, uh, 3 to 14. And again, there's common questions. How are we described? Uh, but what's a bit different is what does Jesus Christ do for us? Why are we chosen, loved, adopted, lavished with grace? And how might this passage guide our approach to life, death, and life beyond the grave? This, this pa- passage is, again, looking at praising and glorifying God, but now we're looking at uh, the difference that Christ makes. Thanks, Michael. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us, and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us, who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us, along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that... Jews who were first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. Now Gentiles also have heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And then you believe in, when you believe in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised, that he has purchased us to be his own people he did this so we would praise and glorify him these are christ's words thanks from the new testament anyway not necessarily no then not christ are they they're paul's aren't they paul's words about christ 
words. They're Paul's words. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Great, thanks. Um, now, what I'm going to do now is reflect on those passages, apply it to the, the, the question of euthanasia, and then I'm going to open it up to questions and comments. So if you, if you have any questions or comments, um, save them up. There'll be an opportunity um, if there are points of clarification or insights that you want to share uh, at the end, that would be great. Um, I wanted to begin by giving you a bit of a context of how might this, how this whole debate about euthanasia start and, and wanted to share a personal experience. Um, 20 years ago, my grandfather died and my mother uh, was his primary carer. She was there with him. And uh, when I asked my mum about it, she said it was a beautiful death. Um, she said there were parts of it that were quite wonderful, uh, but she also said it was a horrible death. And I asked her what she meant, and she told me that she, she had a lot of issues with her father. Uh, he'd been an alcoholic most of his life. I got to meet him after he'd, he'd recovered from that. And she said there was a lot of pain, a lot of things she wanted to share with her father before he died. And she said in the last two weeks of her life, uh, father's life, she got to share uh, those feelings and to make peace with her dad. And so he died in her arms and he assured her of his love and she said it was a wonderful experience. Uh, it was a good death. Um, so I asked her, well, what was the horrible part? And she said there was too much pain and suffering, uh, too much anxiety and fear. It was uncomfortable and messy, and she said it went on for two weeks. Uh, she went in that hospital every day, two weeks, and there were ups and downs, but it was drawn out, and she felt like it was a mess. Uh, she said it was a horrible death, a bad death. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I worked in an aged care facility, and our aim is to give every person in our facility a good death. We want them to be as comfortable and as peaceful and as supported as they can be. And we're getting better and better at it. And we're getting a lot better at making it as painless and as comfortable as we can. In fact, Calvary as an organization started for this very reason. A group of Catholic nuns noticed how, this is 150 years ago, how people often died alone, um, distraught. And you can imagine back then they didn't have much medication. And so that's when they started the little company of Mary and Calvary as an organisation. They started hospitals, 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 hospices and aged care facilities. So we've really concentrated on providing this palliative care. But what we can't do is we can't remove all the pain and discomfort. And despite all the work and, and effort that people put in, people still have a difficult death. And it can be messy um, it can be painful at times. It can take two weeks before a person finally passes away. So I fully understand why people want to in introduce assisted dying. People want to be able to control what is happening to them. And they want the option of ending their lives once it becomes too much for them to bear. That is a, a prominent belief in our society. In most cases, people want to end their lives while it's still good. They don't want uh, any of the horrible stuff. And 
they are fighting for the right to end their lives on their terms. And it's called euthanasia, which is literally means from the Greek, a good death. So that's what they want to do. They want to have a good death and take control of it. And that's what we're talking about. And this is an important topic because on the 19th of June, 2019, Victorians who are at the end of their life who meet a strict criteria could request the access to voluntary assisted dying. So it's already started in Australia. And there are moves for euthanasia to be introduced in Western Australia, ACT, Northern Territory. Countries like Sweden have been doing it for 10 years. But what we have to think is, is what we mean by euthanasia. And as, as you look back at that definition I mentioned earlier, it is a deliberate intentional act. So it can be voluntary, chosen by the person suffering. Um, this is the euthanasia that state and territory governments are seeking to introduce. People are asking for the right to seek the assistance of a doctor to help them and end their lives at their time and in their way. And it can be involuntary, non-voluntary. Uh, it can occur when a person suffers from severe dementia or from an injury to the brain. Now, that's, that's not being talked about in Australia, but if you looked to what's happening in Sweden, um, they're already moving down this path. Um, so it, it becomes when it, what, what, what do you, if you if you're accepting that people want, all want a good death, and if a person's got to a point where they can't choose that anymore, um, we who are already making decisions for them um, should then uh, give them the good death that we all agree is important. So you can see the steps that that Sweden has gone down. They see themselves as, well, we're being caring, compassionate to one another. Why wouldn't we want to be caring and compassionate to these people who can't make this choice themselves? Um, so they're, they're already moving down that path. Uh, it can be non-voluntary, performed on people who can't decide, and it can be involuntary. That means performed on a person against their will. So in Sweden because they're suffering under the coronavirus because they allowed it to spread through their society. Their hospitals are being filled with elderly people. So they've actually asked the question, maybe it would be better for the good of others if we euthanize the older people who would get the virus so they don't have to put such a huge strain on the hospital system. So, I mean, that's being suggested. They, they're not actually adopting, but you can see how you progressively move down this line. Once you start talking about, well, this is a good death, we can't give people a good death because the hospitals are full of people who are taking up spaces. Um, and many, many of the older people have already chosen to euthanize. So you, you can see the steps that they're taking. We'll make it for them even. They don't know what's best for them. And so we'll make that decision for them. And that's where you get uh, involuntary euthanasia. Um, and as I said, it's important that we know, understand what it's not. It's not declining uh, medical treatment. So I'll give you an example. In our aged care facility, we ask every resident, um, do, are they, if they were to have a heart attack while they were there, do they want CPR? Do they want us to ring an, an ambulance and take them to the hospital? And they get to choose. Uh, because you've, you've got to ask, 
they're in their 90s, uh, their heart is failing, the likelihood is if we did give them CPR, we brought them back, it would happen again, we'd have to take them to hospital over and over again uh, because their heart is gradually failing. So many choose not to have CPR. Um, so that is not euthanasia. That's where I'm letting my heart take its natural course. Um, we've had some residents who've come in and said, I won't take antibiotics. So if I get a flu or I get an infection, um, my body can no longer fight it um, because they'll just end, because a lot of them will have ongoing infections over and over again, and some have chosen not to have antibiotics. Um, so they're, 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 they are the, those options um, for people, and that's not considered euthanasia. That's been available for quite some time. Uh, and then there's the pain relief, and we've got very good at pain relief. That's not euthanasia. Even if a person's unconscious, we can tell um, through people's expressions on their faces, the movement of their bodies, how they respond when we move them, the levels of pain, and we can administer pain relief to match that pain. And it's quite good. Um, so the, the options of pain relief are quite broad. And as I said, we're getting better and better. Our staff are trained how to do it. And I have seen people who pass away peacefully, comfortably, um, and free of pain and discomfort. Um, there's some discomfort, but we respond to it and um, they're surrounded by their family um, and it's, it's a good passing and the people really appreciate it because the people are already dying and we're not doing anything to make them die. We're just helping them through this final part of their lives. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, as, as our world is moving down this path um, of wanting a good death, free from discomfort, or delay, uh, how do we respond? Uh, should we resist or should we accept it as a compassionate response when faced with the possibility of a bad death? And I think the only way we can answer is we've got to turn to the scripture uh, to give us this understanding of how best to approach it. And you might say it's easy. Why, why wouldn't we just go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13? You shall not murder. It's the sixth commandment. But what we have to remember is when that command was given, it was actually given in the context of a relationship. The Ten Commandments were given specifically uh, to the people of Israel. God had just brought them out of Egypt, out of their slavery. He was forming a new relationship with, him, with them. So when this commandment was given, thou shall not murder, thou shall not kill, it was within a relationship God had established with his people. So we, we have to remember that all the time when we're looking at the scripture, that it's, it's within this network relationship between God, his people, the rest of the world, and the environment in which they live. It's the only way we can fully understand what's going on. And, and it's the same, it's the same um, when we look at this topic of um, euthanasia. Um, we, we have to begin with, well, how do we view the world? And that will help us understand what we need to do in this particular case. So this, is, this applies for many of the ethical issues that we're facing at the moment. When you look at them in isolation, 
um, you, you can you can find it it can be quite difficult. You can't really tell what's going on. The arguments that people are making seem quite sound. Why shouldn't the individual have the right to make their own choices? I can fully understand why someone doesn't want to suffer as they reach the last stages of their life. So if you look at it in isolation, you can easily find yourself walking down that path. What we need to do is to make sure we're looking at it from God's perspective, God's worldview. Um, there's an analogy, a, a, a story I came across years ago that really impacted on me on this whole idea of the importance of worldviews. Um, take the Indigenous people of our country. They had a very different worldview to the first white explorers. And, and we're still having this problem with the Indigenous people today. We have our idea of what's best for them and we keep imposing it on them, not understanding they have a completely different way of viewing the world. I'll give you an example. Historians record that a group of Aborigines were amazed when the first white explorers um, were crossing the Blue Mountains because of all the work they were putting into building this road. Uh, they were laughing at them. They were sitting there watching them and, and they couldn't believe it. They, they were splitting rocks, digging trenches, laying gravel. And you can imagine the Blue Mountains way back then. It was just all shovels and picks. It was hard work. And the Aborigines, they couldn't understand what was going on. And they wanted to know, why don't you just walk among the grass, around the tree, through the rocks? Like, uh, and, you know, why, why aren't you doing that? We've been doing it for thousands of years. In fact, the Aborigines were crossing the Blue Mountains backwards and forwards for thousands of years. Um, we celebrate Blacksland, Lawsland um, for, and Wentworth for what they did. Um, but basically we're celebrating that they built a road across the Blue Mountains. And, and then when you think about it, you think, hold on a minute. Uh, the Aboriginal people, they had no concept of horses pulling carts full of provisions and goods. Because all they ever needed was produced by the land that they lived on. The country would give them what they needed. They didn't need to collect it, store it, and move it from place to place. The explorers did, because that's the only way they understood life. The land was something to, to own, um, to withdraw resources from, store, make a profit, and to do that, I have to have a road because I'm not going to be able to move my goods without the cuts. You can see the clash of worldviews that are taking place. The first Australians had a very different way of viewing the world to the white explorers. And it's the same for us as we address this topic of euthanasia. So our society has a way of looking at the world that is very different from what the Bible has. So let's see what the Bible's view of the world. Have a look at Psalm 8 and you'll be given a snapshot of this network of relationships. So it begins with a recognition of the majesty of God, where we have, where the, the writer says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'll, I'll bring up your translation because I think it's a little different um, to the one I have. I'll just put it there. Our, oh Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Notice he says, Lord, our Lord. So straight away, we've been told about relationships. The Lord is our master. He's our sovereign king. And then we're told about the Lord's greatness. Your glory is higher than the heavens. 
So it's displayed in the heavens itself. And time again, you get the, the psalmist looking at the heavens and drawing from it uh, an opportunity to praise God. Um, it was one of the greatest discoveries of this, of this century. Scientists pointed the Hubble Space Telescope at a small part of black space. To our eyes, the part of the sky they were looking at was the size of a fingernail. And then they focused on this small portion of space to see back in time and history. And they were shocked by what they discovered. A fingernail of space was filled with 3,000 galaxies. You have set your glory in the heavens. Verse 2, and children, you are taught children and infants to tell your strength, silencing your enemies. And then reflecting on all this, the psalmist asks a question. And he asks, uh, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. So it's all about our place. He's wondering, what's our place in all of this? You have the majesty of God, the grandeur of the universe, and the psalmist wants to know what is humanity's place. And then he tells us in verse 5 and following, you, gave them, uh, you, you made them only a little lower than God, crowned them with glory and honour. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. So you can see the network of relationships. You have the Lord our God as the creator. The stars and galaxies display his grandeur. We've been crowned uh, with glory and honor. We, we share the likeness of God. And then we've been given a privileged position, a little lower than God himself in all the universe, an honored position as we have charge over the created world in which he has placed us. And so the psalmist stands, Lord, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. So what has this got to do with euthanasia? A great deal. We cannot understand God's approach to this topic until we understand our place that he's given to us in this universe. So I'm not just an individual all on my own making decisions about my life. I'm in relationship with God, myself, each other, and the world in which I live in. That's the, the way God views us and the way we need to view ourselves. And then, then, then this picture is developed and extended further when we get to Christ. In fact, that was always God's intention. Uh, and, in, and on occasions, Psalm 8 is actually used to refer to Christ. So it was in the mind of God, even as he uh, created us, that Christ would always come. So if you have a look at Ephesians 1, we get to extend this, this picture further, fuller. It becomes more fully developed. And again, it's another call to praise God. I mean, in Psalm 8, it was a call to praise God because of the heavens and how he had created us and, and the place he'd given to us in this world. In Ephesians 1, it's a call to praise God and to celebrate him because of the blessings that we have in Christ. Have a look at the, at the start. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms 
because we're united with Christ. So that, there's that idea. That's the cause. So we've gone from the stars in the universe as a cause of praise to the blessings that we have in Christ. And then Paul lists them off. I mean, you, you can come up with your own list, but this is the one I've come up with. Chosen before the foundation of the world, adopted as sons and daughters, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, knowledge of his will, the first to hope in Christ, marked with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, and then looking toward the great inheritance. And in the Bible, I was uh, looking in, in the NIV, and I think it has it in the King James as well. In verse 8, it is that these were lavished upon us. An amazing word, that lavish. Uh, you, you can imagine someone, you've got, a, you've got your hand cupped open. Someone's pouring in coins, uh, gold coins. It's, it's, it's to the top. Uh, it, you feel like that's enough, but they keep pouring and the, the coins keep falling in. It's overflowing. That's what it means to lavish. That's, and that's what God has given to us in Christ. He's lavished upon us all these riches. He's lavished us with his love and his kindness. And the reason he's done this, uh, the reason he's given these things so that we might be holy and blameless in his life, so that we might uh, be holy and without fault in his eyes. There's a purpose behind it. And the other reason for this great mercy, and it gets repeated throughout uh, Ephesians 1, um, is to the praise of his glorious grace. So he's given us all these riches that we benefit from, that we might then praise and rejoice in God. So in Psalm 8, we look to the stars and the universe and our position. In Ephesians 1, it's the blessings bestowed upon us in Christ that lead to the praise of his glorious grace. And now, now we're ready to finish this network of relationships and answer the questions about euthanasia. So first off, we've been created by God. These are not our lives. They are his. Remember the clash of worldviews um, between the first Australians and the white explorers. They had two very different relationships with the land. One saw the land as a mother nurturing her children. The other saw it as something to be bought, sold, and to be used for profits. Well, we live in a world with two very different worldviews. Individual rights and freedoms come before anything else. It's your life, and if you do not harm others, you are free to do with your life as you please. This is the dominant worldview. The Bible has a very different one. We've been created by God. These are not our lives. They are his. And we do not have the freedom to end these lives whenever we wish. The Bible also says we've been blessed with the likeness of God and the spiritual blessings found in Christ. And for reason, um, we've, we've, we've been given these things so that we uh, will be blameless and holy in his sight. So he has an expectation there of how his blessings and goodness to us is going to impact on us. Now, Christ does all the hard work when it comes to our holiness and being blameless. He suffers and dies on the cross. He rises from the dead, having conquered sin and death. And we get to share in his victory. But the result of all this 
is meant to be changed lives. People who are like Christ. And so when it comes to euthanasia, uh, for us, and, and it means uh, to face suffering and even death with obedience and grace and love, just like Jesus did. See, it's about sharing the likeness of Christ himself. One, one of the questions that um, residents often ask me as, as they're suffering and, and as they know that death is approaching is what's the point of all of this? Why doesn't God just bring my life to an end? Now, what I do is I sympathize with their feelings of frustration and bewilderment. It is hard to see what good there is in a long, drawn-out death. But when the time is right, and I think they're ready to hear, I tell these people what good can come from their prolonged deaths. Your children are watching. Your grandchildren are watching. The staff are taking notice of you. You're showing them who you are and what matters most to you. Your death and how you face it is an opportunity to show them what it means to be a child of God and how the blessings of Christ mean more to you than anything else. That even though you're going through this hardship and difficulty, you're rich beyond measure. And you're showing them that you're willing to rest your life in his hands. No one else's, not even your own. And you do all of this to the praise of his glorious grace. We all get that opportunity to show people what we believe, what we know to be true in the face of death. But I can't legislate this. It isn't for everyone. And so that's the world in which we live. I I can't bring that into the laws of our land um, so that there will be a struggle. But we do, as God's people, have this opportunity to do what the Bible teaches us. And it has everything to do with who God is and the place he's given us in this world and how, as his sons and daughters, we've been blessed by Christ. So that leaves us with an important question. And I'll finish up here and then open it to questions and comments. How will you face your death? At times it'll seem unbearable, but comfort will be provided. Pain will be felt, but it will be relieved. It may happen quickly. It may take a long time. There'll be a mixture of fear, doubt, love, and compassion. But throughout it all, You won't be alone. And all the days ordained for you, the days that have been written in this book before one of them came to be will come to pass. You will die or Christ will return, whatever happens first. And because you're in Christ, because you're blessed by Christ, a great inheritance will be waiting for you. And all of this will be to the praise of his glorious grace. So for me, death, provides an opportunity uh, to be like Christ and to serve God in in that final way before whomever he surrounds us with. So I'd love to open it up to any questions or comments people have about anything that I've shared or any insights yourself may have gained. Thanks, Chris. Can I I start? 
Um, we've recently just come through this with my own father. He went through a um, <clears throat> very difficult ending, yeah. painful. Um, palliative care involved the application of fairly strong painkillers. Yes. Probably may have hastened his death, but he was he had no quality of life at the end. But um, my question is this, and it's nothing to do with my father, but I remember once reading a book about Red Army soldiers on the Eastern Front, and they made the point that there was no such thing as an atheist on the battlefield. And I was just wondering, do you find that as people approach death, their feelings about life and the meaning of life, the possibility of God, the existence of the existence of God or an afterlife, do you find that changes as they approach or do they just simply people become more hardened, more set in their views that they've had or used or believed or adhered to during life itself? Um, I think, I think it's more uh, the paths they've already taken um, that they, they stay on it. There is room for movement. And, and of course I'm not to, um, God himself can bring about great change, and I have seen that in some people's lives, um, where where it, where he they're able to. I'm just thinking of particular cases where they make res. It's some residents sort of come to a place of resolution about the meaning of everything, and that, and that definitely means that there's an openness towards God. But it's it's more. I always think of the passage in Acts 17. Uh, when, remember when Paul went to the city and he saw how religious the people were, and he wasn't being sarcastic. I think what what Paul was seeing is, and he actually talked about it a bit later, where God w- was working in all the nations in some way. And and so I would say that with each person that that I've dealt with, I can see what God's been doing. He's working in their lives. But it looks very different, um, and and for many, because they, they make those choices, um, they have no room for God at all. Um, so that idea of the atheist, on uh, in some cases, but not as a general pattern, no. So normally it is the path that they're normally on, and and probably this is one of the challenges of the work that I do, and we're, we're actually moving away from calling it pastoral care to spiritual care. Is in a sense, my role is to help an atheist be the best atheist they can be as they face their death. See, um, that's that's the position I have, and I have to be able to sign up to that. Um, so I'm not there it's, uh, to, because um, they're, they're really not at a point where they're open to, it can be quite, uh, so, so, you know, when you share the gospel with someone, um, it can be, Quite distressing, um, and I'm I'm in, I'm in their bedroom. I'm I'm not right next to their bed, you know, holding their. It's a quite a privileged position. I've got to be very careful the role I'm playing. I can't um, with my beliefs, um, sort of, because I could. I know I could ask some very difficult questions that would make them feel very disturbed and upset and I really have to ask what where what is God doing in their life now and and is is that the time and place um, because it can be quite distressing for them so that's where so I've got to, so my role is to help Buddhists be the best Buddhists they can 
be the best atheist they can, the best Christian they can. So that, now that doesn't mean, that means I, I find out um, how, what, what has given them strength and joy in their life and make sure they stay connected. So I'm not going to say Buddhist prayers with them, but I'll, I'll bring a Buddhist priest in if that's what they want. See, that's my role. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Does anybody else have anything they'd like to raise at this point with Chris? Yes. Um, I do. I'm looking at uh, Psalm 8 and the second half of the psalm, and it goes, you've put everything under their authority the flocks and the birds and the wild animals and the sky and the fish in the sea and everything and da-da-da-da-da. Um, at one level, that's an incredible privilege, but it, uh, there are certainly many times humanity has taken that in the wrong spirit and used it as a spirit of domination. And when it comes to aged care, sometimes uh, relatives and family or, or people who are um, allocated to to be the ones, um, what do you call it, power attorney or anything, they're, they're making decisions on behalf of the person. And if they've got this attitude of domination, it can really get quite uh, difficult or quite quite disempowering for the elderly person themselves. So how does all that fit in with being that, that idea even being God given? I I just can't get my head around that idea being God given anyway. Yeah. Um, In the passage where it talks about us being crowned with glory and honor, um, the whole verses, the whole Psalm is talking about the glory and honor of God. So, and even where it talks about it's make, being made a little lower than God. Uh, so it's this idea of we, the, so that authority is um, where we get to share the likeness of God. Because there's a big debate, you know, how it says in the Bible, we're made in the image of God. What does that actually look like? And there's an understanding now that just as God rules over all the universe with justice, wisdom, love and compassion, we are meant to exercise our authority over this world with justice, love, compassion, and holiness. So so that's how we reflect the likeness of God. So he has given us power and authority uh, over creation and what, and even within a network of relationships. And so it's, it's the ruling over something it's meant to be in a godlike way, and he does so with great grace and compassion and generosity. And we're meant to do the same. So, taking it back to that, the aged care situation, uh, we all staff are trained to be acutely aware of all forms of elder abuse. That includes their, uh, all their relationships, whether staff, family, and we we have to report it, investigate it. So, if we saw a resident who was being distressed by the way a family were exercising their power of attorney, um, enduring power of attorney, we have to report that and investigate it. Um, so we're very uh, looking out for that all the time. Um, so when the, the way the enduring power of attorney is meant to be used is primarily when a resident is unable to make 
decisions for themselves anymore. So we have people who um, have severe dementia and as they live with that, over time, uh, they're not able to make decisions for themselves and that's where the family can act on their behalf. So that's, that's the role it's meant to have. Uh, but if we ever see it being used in an abusive way, uh, we, we have to report it. It's got to be investigated. So if they were using it for financial advantage, um, that, that's one, or psychological abuse. You know, if we heard someone saying, look, Mum, yeah. I can make the decisions for you. You've got no say in this. That's a form of psychological abuse. We have to report it and act on it. Mm-hmm. Chris, would this also apply to what we might call spiritual persuasion? Where someone is trying. Oh yes. Well, that's a very good point. So you, that you've helped me out there because I was keen that you understand me helping an atheist be a better atheist. That is, see, because I have a very powerful position. I have to be very careful how I use it, and and because as people get, oh, not all the same. A lot of people are able to stand up for themselves, but but you can um, exert uh, influence these over people because they're quite vulnerable and fragile. And so what I'm, what I really, yeah, spiritual, um, abuse is, um, is part of that would come under elder abuse mm. as well. Um, where we, we have to be careful. So it's, if, if, so again, it's, um, how, how does this make the resident feel? How is it impacting on them? Um, so it's all about the rights of the, uh, resident. They come first, uh, the, um, and so I'm very sensitive to that. But because they sense in me, so I've had, so because I'm helping atheists to be a better atheist, they are much more open to talk to me because they don't see me as a threat. They don't see me as someone who's trying to convert them. They see me as someone who validates, affirm them as a person, recognises them as a person, um, and so I find I had uh, very good conversations with them. But if I came saying, look, I think you're wrong and here are all the ways I think you're wrong, um, that would be the end of the conversation. Yeah. I think Bernard has a question as well. Yes. Uh, in that regard, when the debate about euthanasia gets going in the ACT, yes. uh, what, what should our approach be? in the debate, considering the worldview of society is different? I, um, I think the relationship approach is definitely the way to go because even though our society is emphasising the individual above everything else, um, we recognise we recognise that, hold on, there's still family, there are our society, our community. Because, see, what actually happens, as is the case of Sweden is they found when they talk to the elderly who who choose to get euthanized it's they actually discover a, almost a subtle unconscious family pressure so you remember how the debate has changed from uh you know we do everything in it so it's gone from of course mum and dad uh you want to move into aged care facility and and whatever money it costs to get you to do that will do it to now now the elderly are thinking, I don't want to be a financial burden on my family. So I will see that's not individual rights. See that it's in a network of relationships. So I think that is the way to approach it is to say, we cannot, 
look at people in isolation. We don't do that now. They are part of a family. They're part of a, a community, neighbourhoods. And so it's more about, instead of the right to end their life, to how did we even get to this point where they think that's the best option? So I think that's, rather than investing, because the other thing that eventually happens when you go down euthanasia is less is done on helping people who are dying. So, that, so that's another, another aspect of that we're, we're focusing our attention in the wrong direction. The reason why they bring it up is because they, the way people die is um, so few resources are put there. It's quite difficult. There's a huge waiting list for, for Claire Holland House. Um, that's where we should be putting energy. So they're the sort of things I'd be bringing up as arguments against euthanasia. What about... Because it's a conflicting rights. What about the rights of the grandchildren, to the grandparents, yeah, the family members that are involved in all of this? Uh, associated with that is the, how does the Christian what 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 approach does the Christian community uh, make within the debate? I knowing think, that we're, yeah. Christians are regarded as naysayers and uh, homophobic hate, haters of people and so on? Um, I, would, I would focus on where Christians, uh, uh, the positive aspects of it, and that is um, our, that focus on the importance of relationship with others, the one another aspect of looking out. So um, I think that's where we can make a difference in the community. So it's back down to showing self-sacrificing love. I mean, so yes. part, of, part of the problem with the Christian church at the moment is, um, and, and the media definitely focuses on it because they, they want, you know, to two sides of the argument. They always say they, they'll have key figures they know to go and see, um, to try, who know who are going to say exactly what they want them to say. Um, so what we need to do is to uh, change um, the debate, how people view us. Um, we're playing the role society wants us to have, and we need to change that. And I think there's a hidden aspect that's not seen is the amount of community work churches do, um, the amount of contact we have. Um, with a wide network of people. So that needs to become more uh, a, a prominent view. Chris, you were saying that um, when you see psychological or elder abuse um, in your facilities, you report it. Uh, who do you report it to? Well, there are... Um, so there are re mandatory reporting. Um, uh, so the police have to get... Uh, contacted if there's sexual or physical abuse. Um, the only thing that doesn't... Um, and then the other abuse gets reported to the management and then there's uh, the Aged Care Commission. Like, there's authorities that get involved, but we as an organisation, we have to um, so investigate, report, among, like, within the management, and then they, we come and deal with it. Um, and then there is, we are required and we get audited on this, of making sure residents 
um, know about their their rights um, and that they feel safe. And so they're very strong on uh, feedback, complaints, feedback, um, and there are all of these systems in place where the, the Aged Care Commission and um, Aged Care Standards are looked after. Yeah. But the police will only get involved with sexual and physical abuse. The others are done within the system. Yep. 